Hey everybody, welcome to Row Hunting Resources Podcast. All right, I am coming to you this week from the hotel here in Colorado. I'm still wrapping up the project out here on the Front Range. Should hopefully be back, uh, back home, back to the studio midweek, but uh, yeah, still wrapping up a couple odds and ends on this current project. Um, so yeah, I'm doing this in the hotel room, so it's probably going to sound different. I'm not, I am not uh, video recording this one just because the lighting in this room is just horrible. I did go to the hotel and see if they had a good meeting room that I could use uh, that had better light or what. No, it was, it was horrible, so I'm just going to do it in the room. I think there's probably better acoustics in here, number one, and, and it is what it is. You know what I mean? So, um, yeah, there we go. So, still wrapping up stuff here in Colorado. Uh, it is Sunday night at a stupidly late hour, again, like usual. Does any of you, that's the thing, I have always been this way. I actually do better under pressure. Like, I will procrastinate. I, I've had all week. Now, again, I, so I, I'm, I'm digressing here. There's all these little, little. they're not even rabbit holes. They're like rat holes in the, at this point. Um, so I'm going to answer uh some questions. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna do another. <laughs> this uh, number one. We're gonna try to keep this one a little bit shorter. I've been doing the marathon podcast here lately to where I, we don't need another three hour, four hour podcast. Number one. Number two. I'll take a break from um, me pointing out all the ways that we're dumbasses and and um, yeah. So I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna answer. There's there's trust me. There's still plenty. I mean, it's like daily. People send me stuff and share stuff, or I see stuff that it's just, I mean, it just, oh my gosh, people. I'm going to continue to call out things when I see something that needs to be called out, and and there's a couple of them. Um, There's a couple big ones, but how about we just, I can save that. There's there's no pressing time on it because I don't think anybody's going to change or do anything different anyway. It's just stuff that we can think about for future. Um... So it's not pressing, so I don't need to address it right now. So let's just let's just take a breather on that, and and uh, or me, Chris. And so I did. I sent out um, on Instagram. I, you know, said, hey, you know, what do you guys want to, what do you want to talk about? You know, what what, what topics are you guys interested in uh, talking about for the podcast? And my gosh, this I'm, I'm dead serious, man. I I say this all the time, and I absolutely mean it. I freaking love the Row Hunting Resources family of subscribers and followers because I don't know, I I mean, I have my suspicions of why. But when I talk to my friends that are also, you know, in the industry, that have podcasts, that have, um, you know, big followership on socials and all the other things, it's interesting to see what you know when we start talking and, and and the hate mail they get and the criticisms that they get and and all the this I don't get any of that. I get people messaging me, you know, writing these gargantuan, you know, multi-paragraph posts that like legitimately engage like serious questions. So when I when I asked you guys the other day to send me topics, you know, what do you want me to talk about? Holy holy hell. I mean, a, you guys stepped up and you sent in some questions, but the questions that were sent, I mean, several of them, I'm like, holy, I don't know if I can talk about these because I, I need to do some research. I, I need to, I need to 
I need to call some people. I need to get other people on. I need to interview some people. Because the the questions were phenomenal. Now, I'm going to tackle uh, a few of the ones I chose for tonight uh, that I think, I think there's, we'll, we'll see how, we'll see how long this goes. We'll, we'll see how much I can tackle tonight. Um, I have four written down and you know how I am. It's probably going to end up being a couple hours, but then I'm going to still need to upload it, edit it, or get it over onto the other computer, computer, computer. Yeah, there you go. The other computer, get it done, get it finalized, get it uploaded. Nah, we'll see. It's going to be a long night, but hey. Anyway, so my point being, that was a long way around me saying, I've had a lot of time these past couple days to actually work on this. But have I? Of course not. No, I'm not going to. I do. I put, you know, I, I seem to work better or get clarity when I'm under a deadline. And I, I know I'm not, I can't be, I know I'm not the only one, but that's just how I am. So here it is, Sunday night, 10 o'clock. Why is it 10 o'clock? Because stupid me decided while I'm, well, no, it wasn't while I was doing dinner. So I walk into the hotel and the hotel on the TV in the hotel and they've got the UFC fight on. I'm like, what is this? There's a UFC fight on? I didn't even know. I don't, I don't, I don't watch TV. I don't follow TV. I don't, no. Usually anymore, it seems like most of the good fights are on, you know, pay-per-view anyway, and I'm not spending the money. I'm cheap. So, and then most of the time when I do get the pay-per-view fight, the fights turn out horrible or they end quickly. And it's like, that was just a waste of money. Um, so anyway, so I walk in and here's a, here's a UFC fight. I'm like, huh? So I walk into the room and like an idiot while I'm making dinner, I decided to turn the TV on and sure enough, oh no. Yeah, it's the UFC, UFC fights on and it's it's a good card. I'm like, dang it. And so here we go. For the past, I don't know how many couple hours I've just been sitting here watching the UFC fight. So anyway, <laughs> I do it to myself, people. I can't, I, I there's like, like zero, I have, I have no one to, to complain to or blame other than myself, but that's all right. I will suck it up. I enjoyed I enjoyed those fights, especially that last one. That was good, though, especially round four and five. Were... That's why I love the UFC. You just never know. It doesn't matter if there's an underdog or, or a heavily favored per. You know, it, do, it doesn't matter. I mean, they're all in there. They all have a shot, and all it takes is a couple of good, a couple of good shots, a couple of good combos, a couple of just whether it's a lucky strike or not. It doesn't matter. Just all at any moment, the tide can just shift immediately and it's anybody's game and that and man I don't know and and quite honestly so for those that were asking for elk related topics that is what we're going to talk about tonight um I I I don't want to sound like stupid but I really kind of see some of it parallel for me with elk season you know I, I like that that intellectual, that cerebral, that game, that chess match, that competition with that animal. And man, it doesn't matter how good I am or how good I think I am. And I know how good they are. I'm going to throw everything I've got at them. And sometimes I lose, man. Other times <laughs> I don't lose. And, and I just tick, 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 and put them right where I wanted it to be. Now, maybe it's a younger age class animal, or maybe it's something that I, you know, an animal that I, I'm just chooses you know i choose to pass up or, or let go or whatever but it's it's that game to where you just never know i mean you're gonna go on the landscape and and you're gonna put your best foot forward and your best your mind forward and your best game forward um 
but it's anybody's game, man. It's it it. Oh, I don't know. I, I I do I do like watching some UFC, and I do really wish that back in the day when I was younger, I I lived in a places where I had opportunity to do some you know have a gym nearby that did jujitsu or or some of the other martial arts stuff because I, I, it would have been fun to engage in. But I just never I just never lived in anywhere that had that as a as a as a possibility, unless I wanted to travel multi hours, you know, multiple hour trips, you know, which no. Anyway, that was a ramble, but so that's what we're going to do tonight. I'm going to, I'm going to answer a couple. I've got four questions. Well, and let me, let me rephrase that. I've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. There's like Okay, so I'm going to hit four topics. Those four topics are going to cover at minimum 12 of of the of the of the comments and the questions that came in in response to me asking for, you know, topics for this podcast. So there's a number of you that have asked questions regarding these four topics and so that's why I that's what, kind of why I picked these four topics. I, and I don't even know if I'm going to get all four. I we're going to see. I'm going to I'm going to keep an eye on what the what the timestamp is here. Again, it's late. I I've got to get up and continue to to knock stuff out first thing in the morning. So I don't want to be up too late. <clears throat> but um, now these topics are four of them. And then, like I said, I've got several. There's a bunch more that I'm not going to ignore. I'm I'm going to try to whittle at, and I'm going to try to incorporate those into into other discussions in the future. Um, maybe not this week, maybe not next week, but, um, I've got them tucked away because they're, they're awesome. And, and I think they're, they're legit questions to tackle. All right. So <clears throat> we'll, we'll get into the, um, you know, I, I don't know what you guys want to call it. I, I've, I've had a bunch of comments come back from you guys saying, you know, you, number one, again, thank you very much for the feedback. Number two, thank you very much for the support, uh, on these podcasts, um, yeah, I just it's it's awesome and and I've appreciated a lot of the um conversations back and forth. And the fact that yeah, I th- I, I mean, obviously I feel passionate about the fact that that we as sportsmen need to up our game. We we need to be better. We we have we have got to be a better specimen of player on the landscape in the world of conservation. We are good. We are we are I think I think we are still the best. But does that mean we don't have areas and room for improvement? Not at all. I think we've got grotesque amounts of improvement that we could um, uh, grow into. Uh, but just, I don't, I just, for me, right now, I'm not hearing many people talking about holding sportsmen's feet to the fire on just being better. Um, Grant, we we can we can say Matt Ranella maybe kicked off that theme and and rightfully so, um, but there's going to be a bunch of things that I'm gonna I'm gonna jump in and I'm I'm gonna tackle because I think it needs to be said and and you don't have to agree with me I, I'm not telling you to agree with me I'm just going to tell you what my opinion is based on my experience based on on, on my critical thinking and I'm going to express that to you and I'm gonna if nothing else I'm gonna try to get you to think. You know, I think, you know, everybody, I think, uh, attributes it to uh, Ronald Reagan. I don't know if he is the one that said it, but somebody once said, 
if everyone in the room is in agreement, somebody's not thinking. So if I need to take one for the team and be that devil's advocate, if I need to be the contrarian, if I need to be the one calling bullshit, um, okay, I don't mind doing that. Um, so anyway, that's that's the point. It's it, you know again, I I'm I am still a sportsman. I am a still I am still a sportsman's advocate, and I always will be. And I think the North American model of wildlife conservation is righteous in how it was set up. Just like the way this country was set up under the Bill of Rights and Declaration of Independence and, and how the Founding Fathers built this republic. However, has has some of it gone off the rails? Has it has it been corrupted? Has it been bastardized? Has it been yes. And so, no, I don't want to throw the baby out with the bath bathwater. I, I I'm not turning into some environmental I, I'm not, or anti hunter. No. This is about understanding the core bedrock of our foundation of belief and our passion, our lifestyle, our way of life is righteous, but how we manifest ourselves on the landscape in some ways is bullshit. And and we need to, and somebody needs to call it out. Hey, I'll take one for the team. All right. So if you don't like it, don't listen, but it's just, it's, it's, there it is. It it is what it is. But again, I'm not going to make that every podcast. So to that end, here we go. I'm going to jump in on um, four different topics that revolve around elk, um, Western hunting, and what's going on in some of the current some current events, and then some broader issues, uh, broader broader concepts. So let's dive in. All right. So the first one. Let's see. Adam McKay, Justin Weber, Weber. Is it Weber or Weber? I, it could be Weber. It could be Weber. I'm going to say Weber. Logan Erdman. Luke Gunther, there's, I mean, and there's a, there's several more. Um, you guys asked me about what I thought regard, uh, what I thought about regarding uh, Wyoming going to the 90 10 uh, split as far as 90% resident, 10% non resident. And then the, the kind of similar but different, Montana just made a massive, bunch of changes to their um, regulations and they just changed their tag allocations and they've got some outfitter tags and, and stuff now guaranteed tags for non-residents so it's it's going to change a bunch of things um, here's the thing number one I don't hunt Montana never have I've always been interested I've got a buddy that lives up that uh, up in that neck of the woods that we've talked about uh, hunting together in the past I've never hunted there so I've never paid attention to Montana so I don't know a dang thing about man Montana likewise I don't spend I have points I'm building points for Wyoming again because I was an idiot back in the day when I was in Colorado I was building points so I hunted Wyoming uh, in 2006 had a phenomenal just a, just an incredible hunt um, started building points, had a bunch of points. And when I moved to Kansas in the move and all the distractions around that move two years in a row, I forgot to do anything. And anybody that's familiar with Wyoming, that's a no, no, because they just go, you have no points anymore. They just purge your, they purge everything. So I'm built, I, I'm built I've, from there. I've been building back up to get points, but literally 
there, there's been nothing on Wyoming that's on my radar screen as of yet. I, I've got too many other things going on. I, I have got other uh, focuses, focus, see, fo- fo- I'm focused somewhere else. Let's just change the sentence. Um, so I, I don't, I have not spent a lot of time looking at Wyoming. I'm going to touch on this topic, this, this here in a second, but this is where I will briefly say, if you go and you listen to some of the podcasts that are done by folks like Go Hunt or uh, The Hunt and Fool, um, some of those other, uh, well, or, or people that are based in Montana or based in Wyoming, you know, Eastman's, those lean on those resources. Okay, folks, these people are passionate about this stuff. This is their livelihood. This is their job going in and and picking apart everything regulation in these states. Um, At this at this point in time, in the past, people used to think that, you know, hunting fool was for those big rich people that just wanted to, you know, buy those governor tags. And, you know, the you know, they're going to spend 15 grand on a, a license or whatever. Any more the resources that that you know go hunt hunt and fool and Eastman's and and everybody else provide a lot of other folks provide. It's invaluable for the average guy, okay, average non-resident hunter that wants to go hunt these states. It's they've they've got a lot of information, and these guys, it's their passion. This this is their wheelhouse, just like my wheelhouse for what I do on the Elk Hunting Institute and the Elk Module, the Row Hunting Resources website. It's elk behavior, elk vocalizations, communication, how to exp- how to just understand that thing, all that down to a core, and then exploit every little bit of it to to be better in the landscape. That's my jam. Animal behavior and how to exploit it, you know, from the hunter's perspective. That's what I love. That's my wheelhouse. These guys, it's it's incredible. So I, I did listen to um, the Hunt and Fool guys were on a podcast and they talked about Montana, and quite honestly, you could tell these guys know what they're talking about because they're just rattling off units and areas and drainages and all sorts of stuff blah, 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 to where for me it made no sense because I have no idea what the hell they're talking about. But for anybody that's been focused on Montana, if you have preference points for Montana, if you've been you know looking forward to hunting Montana, they're going to have the, the type of dialogue that you're looking for. I appreciate you coming to me. I appreciate you asking me, but I'm I'm I am going to tell you I'm not the expert on that, so I will pitch you off to those people that are. And so definitely go hunt, hunt and fool, um especially they like I said they just did a podcast and talking about that. I know Eastman's has talked to some I I don't know. Someone told me that Eastman's has been talking about it. Um dive in on that stuff and consume it, all right? And then if you have specific questions, if you, if, you know, if, if you have, rather than the broad generalized stuff, if, if you have specific questions, by all means, if you want to, uh, if you want me to kind of chime in on it, tell me, you know, I listened to so-and-so and they said this, and then I listened to so-and-so and they said this, and I said, you know, blah, blah, blah. What do you, you know, based on these things, what do you think that I, I can chew on some of that stuff. Um, but when it starts talking about unit numbers and, past history on unit management, you know, and, and hunter, uh, numbers and all that. No, I, I've got, I don't have that. So, um, what I will talk about regarding this is this is the thing that people need to keep in mind. And I was having dinner the other night with a good friend of mine who lives in Wyoming 
And apparently he got kicked off a, a page because he disagreed. Somebody had said that they were, they were just lit up, pissed off about what Wyoming was doing or what Montana was doing and making the making the claim that you know somebody not some non-resident is going to go in there and sue the state and just make make a whole bunch of money suing the state and bankrupting the state because this is all bullshit and there's been people out there and you know non-resident hunters have been building points and putting in for all these and they've spent all this money and they spent all this time and they invested this time and well now they're not going to be able to you know get a tag and blah, blah, blah. And now rather than taking 15, you know, 10 points or 15 points or 20 points, now it's going to take 40 points for them to get in. This is bullshit. And, and so somebody in the state is going to pay because got blankety blank blank. And, you know, this is wrong. It's illegal. It's bullshit. The state can't do that. This is all of our wildlife. It's all federal land. And you can't like, hold on, shut up. These are the same people they're going to get fired up on like howl for wildlife or whatever. And like, yeah, the North American model of wildlife conservation. I stand on that. And we need to, you know, oh, really? The state, the wildlife in the state is managed by the state for the what? Oh, yeah. We've talked about this before. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> People of the state. The state has decided oftentimes because of money they've decided that they and and quite honestly based on numbers pure just they need harvest numbers so for herd management and revenue generation they have been generous in allowing non-residents the privilege of coming into their state and going after their the wildlife in their state that is it. That is all that they've, that's all that the state has, has allowed you to do. Participate to whatever the state deems suitable or acceptable. They've allowed the non-resident to come in and enjoy some of what that state has to offer. At no time in your license applications was there any sort of promise of any sort of performance, of any sort of guarantee of when you would or would not draw a tag. None. Zero. Zip. You are applying as a non-resident to that state under the complete generosity and the privilege of them allowing you to do so. And at any moment, they can change how that arrangement works because there's no contract between you and the state. So if a state, now, now if all of a sudden a state decided they're like, all right, no more non-residents, we're kicking you all out. Now, maybe, maybe, and I mean a strong maybe, maybe some non-resident hunter would have a case especially if they had a lot of money invested in, in, into it and you could articulate how much money you've had invested in it. But if the state simply changes the percentage of non-resident versus resident tags and they change how the non-resident tags are going to be allocated, if they're still allowing non-resident tags, well, then you still have a chance. You still have an opportunity. They've changed the nature of the opportunity, but you still have an opportunity. So 
some of the people that are just absolutely getting flaming pissed about the fact that states changed what they did and you and you're claiming that you have a lawsuit oh f- please oh yes please 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 by all means go find an attorney go find an attorney and see if that attorney will take up your cause and see if that attorney can file a lawsuit on your behalf and let's just see what happens with that court case be ready to spend some money be ready to lose but by all means if you think you have a a legal case to go after these states for you know changing their their non-resident allocations you know midstream of when you were applying uh, okay as a non-resident you are not a constituent you, you you have I understand what you're talking about. You you have you, okay. There's there's different things in in law, and you know I can understand where there's this you know basically a, a you could argument you could argue that yes there was a contract because they offered you agreed and you paid so that was an offer and acceptance and blah blah blah. Okay, I understand that, but they're not getting rid of your opportunity to apply and possibly get a tag you still have an opportunity yes it may be diminished or maybe it is changed but they're still offering you an opportunity so i don't think you have a case i I really don't but maybe you do and if you think you do then freaking shut up sue the state and see where it goes put your money where its mouth is quit quit bitching and, and and complaining because again the the funny thing is is I listen I I'm I'm hearing some of the people complaining and they're complaining that a state changed how the non-residents engage in that state but I cannot help but wonder how many of these same people in their home state bitch and complain about non-resident hunters from other states coming to their state screwing their a lot of these people that i'm listening to complaining about what wyoming or what montana especially wyoming what wyoming did are from colorado and i'm sitting here i'm listening i'm looking at him i'm like dude i i know you like i've known you for like a long time or i've I've at least watched your posts i've 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 followed you i i I have cross-pollination with you I know damn well you have you you bitch and complain every year about hunter crowding in Colorado. And the hunter crowding in many units in Colorado is coming from non-resident hunters. And so you're bitching and complaining about the fact that Colorado is catering too much to non-resident hunters and it's diminishing your hunt quality in Colorado and and Colorado really needs to do something about non-resident hunters, but wait a minute, hold on. You're pissed that the state of Wyoming did something about non-resident hunters in their state? What, it's okay now that it, it I guess, because it affects you, it's righteous. But So when it, whatever affects you is, is the most important thing. Is, is that what I'm getting at? Is, or is that what you're getting at? So if you're negatively affected in your home state, well, then those evil pieces of shit, non-resident hunters, need to be restricted. However, when you are the non-resident hunter and you want to go hunt out of state, well, damn it, that state better cater to me and better give me that tag because otherwise that's bullshit. Yeah. Yeah, you're, you're, you're going to lose me on that argument. You're going to lose me on that argument. 
Because if you look back, and, and it, it, this is the thing, and, and this is going to come up here in a second as well on a different topic. You look at across the states, it's not just Colorado, you know, or Oregon that just gets slammed by, you know, hunters. You know, you could look at Idaho. Every single Western state that has non every way, every, at this point, seriously, especially, I can even say this from, uh, from a standpoint of Kansas, but, you know, these states that, that have a high demand for hunting and a high demand for non resident hunting. You listen to the comments and, and you look at any of these surveys in there. The state hunter, the the resident hunter population, oftentimes has a very low satisfaction about the their predicament predicament when it comes to hunter crowding, hunt satisfaction, especially with regard to how the state manages non-resident hunters. Almost all of them complain about there's too many non-resident hunters. And so if, if the state, again, if you're going to sit there as this newfound sportsman's advocate and you're going to get all politically active and you're going to be firing off, you know, letters to your representatives and your congressmen and your, your wildlife commission and you're going to try to go toe-to-toe with animal activists and, and these anti-hunters and you're going to stand on the pedestal of the North American model of wildlife conservation, uh, remember the wildlife that resides in the state is managed for the people of the state. And so the state agencies are going to listen, number one, should, they damn well better listen to their public, their citizens, first and foremost, and then after that, consider the non-residents as well. Okay, I think so. And so when you look at Hunter Satisfaction, it these days... It's, it's not trending upward as far as more and more people are more and more satisfied with what they're seeing on the landscape. That's just not the trend. And quite honestly, especially when we look at not only is the trend of hunter satisfaction across the landscape kind of decreasing, the, the level of desire that hunters have for a higher quality hunt experience is growing Maybe not exponentially, but it is a sharp, if, if it's not exponentially, it is a steep linear incline. The number of people that are wanting more and more of a quality hunt experience is growing. And so if you're within a state and you are dissatisfied with the hunt quality and you want better hunt quality and you get engaged with your state agency and the state agency is actually responsive to its citizenry, then it makes sense that a lot of these states are going to change how they structure non-resident hunts. Uh, you know, some states, they're in, they're, the vast majority of their budget is dependent upon non-resident hunting. Other states, not so much. They don't, they don't need it as much. And so if they're going to look across the, the, the landscape and say, hunter satis- if, if we're going to just go after hunter satisfaction, well, then they're going to have to make some changes. Likewise, some of the states, like you, you, if you listen to my podcast that I had with Rob Batuto of the Stickbow Chronicles when we were talking about Idaho, if you look at what Idaho did, and I think this is what's going on with Montana as well, if I understood the guys talking the other day about it, you know, they're, they're cha- making these changes in part to better redistribute hunters across the landscape because hunters are clumping 
into certain areas, creating excessive pressure in certain areas that's degrade, you know, degrading hunt satisfaction, degrading success, and literally degrading the ability for overall herd management of those elk because they're not hunting in other places. Well, now by changing some of the, uh, how the, the state structures their license allocation and unit, you know, allocations, they're better able to move hunters around on the landscape to better manage herd numbers and herd objectives using hunting because the other option is they just don't worry about using hunting and they go in and what do they do what what are they going to do give depredation tags and give landowners just go in their waylay waylay animals or the agency going to go in and shoot animals or are they just going to say well we'll just let wolves go running over what do do you want to do are are hunters the ones managing the population or not is that what you want do you want hunters still managing the population yes if that's the case then the state has to do what the state has to do to move hunters around on the landscape so it better meets so that so the hunter harvest and the and the hunter effort better reflects what they need for the herd objective harvest objectives in those areas so is it going to be the same no is it going to suck for a little bit yeah is it going to negative, especially the non-resident people that have either preference points or bonus points or what, however, the, you know, Montana, it sounds weird. I, like I said, I've never focused on Montana. They have preference points and bonus points and blah, blah, blah. <clears throat> but okay, so you've invested all this time and effort over these years in hopes of, okay, that's that's literally what it is. It's been in hopes of. There's been no guarantee. They, they didn't sign any, there's been no commitment to you as an individual non-resident hunter that they're going to fulfill any certain thing other than we're going to provide an opportunity for you to participate it may be a limited opportunity it may be a gracious opportunity or whatever and anywhere in between but if they need to change their license allocations to help you know especially units and how and numbers of licenses in different units and how they split up units and how they split up hunt codes and all that type of stuff to better redistribute the hunting pressure across the landscape well then that's exactly what they need to do and as you as a sportsman that stands behind the north american model of wildlife conservation well guess what they're doing exactly what you want them to do based on the fundamental framework of your ideology so what why are you what i understand it sucks it seems unfair but i also remember when colorado went 100 percent limited for mule deer the mule deer hunters a, a lot of the mule deer hunters just absolutely lost their ever-loving minds because they didn't want they wanted to be able to go buy a mule deer license every year and go mule deer hunting every year and so there was a massive controversy over turning colorado into a hundred percent mule deer 100 percent draw uh for mule deer in the state and then two to three years later guess what everybody's been able to go out there and hunt every year every other year every three years maybe a little more and they're actually having a better hunt in many cases and so a lot of people were like okay well this doesn't suck so bad Okay, I know. That's the problem. We don't like change. I understand that. We don't like change. All right? We, we don't like change. And, and, and change in the sportsman community is going to be a fundamental topic of an upcoming discussion. Another, um, it's probably going to be on a three-hour-plus rant about me calling bullshit where bullshit needs to be called in, within the hunting community and advocacy <clears throat> and, and our, you know, our quote-unquote leadership in the world of quote-unquote conservation 
or not. Um, but bottom line, Wyoming did what Wyoming did for Wyoming. Montana did for what Montana did for Montana. And we don't have to like it. Like, for instance, I mean, here you go. For, for instance, one of the things that I think is the stupidest freaking I hate. Uh, number one, no, I don't like guaranteed outfitter licenses. I just don't like them. To me, that is government corporatism. That is that is government taking a, a, a public resource and then choosing a private industry and using the public resource to prop up a private industry. I have a, we can, if someone wants to come on and, and have a discussion about why those outfitter, and I know all the generalities, okay, but if you want to come on and you want to have a discussion about why guaranteed outfitter tags are critical for the, for the wildlife management and the, the long-term sustainability of hunting in a state, please message me. I will have you on. Absolutely. I think it's bullshit. I don't like them. I don't like them on a general principle. However, I would be a hypocrite if I didn't say I took advantage of one in New Mexico. That's how I was able to hunt New Mexico several years back. A buddy of mine is actually a very large outfitter down there, a very successful outfitter down there, has got a hellaciously awesome outfit and invited me to come down. We we worked a trade on a couple things and I came down. I just walked in, bought the, le- just, there you go. I used his outfitter tag. I didn't have to draw. So I've taken advantage of that. And in those places where you have that connection or if you have the money to pay for an outfitter or that's what you want to do, then quite honestly, man, it works. I mean, it's to your benefit because now you you can just go do it. But from a general principle standpoint across the the broader public, no, I I don't like them. I just personally don't like them. Um, But that's just my opinion. But guess what? It's somebody else's state. I don't have a say in it. I don't. I don't. You, whoever's in Montana can do what you, the hunters in Montana and the state agency of Montana can sit down and powwow how they want to do stuff in Montana. Wyoming, that's the other thing too with Wyoming. You can't hunt wilderness in Wyoming without hunting with a local, with with a without without hunting with a, a Wyoming resident, or hiring a guide. Like what? I can hunt wilderness in any other state, but but no 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 no. Not in not in Wyoming. If I if I want to hunt wilderness in Wyoming, I have to go with someone who lives there, or I got to hire a guide. I, I hate that. I hate. I freaking hate that rule. But guess what? It's baked into the cake. That's what Wyoming says. That's what I have to live by. That is that's the that is the the suite of conditions that I have to accept if I want to engage in the privilege of hunting in that state. And so there you go. So. Non-resident hunters are not owed really anything. Again, we we can have that discussion, and I, I'm open to having a discussion with somebody that that wants to articulate the law better than what I understand it. But as long as they're not functionally removing your opportunity to hunt that state, if you've built up all those preference points and you've spent that time and money over the years. I don't think you have a pot to piss in, man. I'm sorry. Just suck it up and just grit your teeth and 
be angry if you want, but I, I don't, I don't see you having, I don't see you have standing. Okay. So there, I'll, I'll leave that at that. Um, but for people that want to know more about it, uh, the details, like the nitty gritty details, that's where you go to go hunt. That's where you go to hunt and fool. That's where you go to Eastman's. That's where you go to those outlets people that that this is their life they they pick apart units they pick apart draw stat you know stats and hunter numbers and and they live there and they eat breathe and, and sleep it and they, and they know and have friends in the agency they they talk to the commissioners on a routine basis i mean this is their life their life and oftentimes it's their livelihood well those are the people you need to lean on all right um and then with that you know people also a, a second question you know Wyatt Carter Jesse Hoffman and a couple others had had brought up the question about um you know Idaho uh not and we're going to use Idaho as this specific example here but they were also uh, oh what's the other one yeah uh, there was a couple people about limiting technology just in general but so another thing is is okay we can talk about the state changing what they want to do uh for license allocations and non-resident you know uh, allocations but the other question was is what hey, well, what about technology you know what about so in idaho apparently they're they're talking about making lighted knocks legal and expandable broadheads legal or, or there there's people that want to make them legal um and then it's see it's for me i laugh and i, and I don't mean to make this a joke because it's not a joke but the response by the the state agency was well you know if you know if we in Colorado went I mean if if Idaho is in fact doing this they they literally just printed off the playbook of Colorado and are they're not even they're not even memorizing the lines they're just opening up the playbook and they're just reading it line by line verbatim because when Colorado wanted to allow lighted knocks and allow uh like video cameras to be mounted onto your bow like a gopro onto your bow before those were you could not put anything electronic on your bow or string or arrow so when colorado went and advocated for the include to make lighted knocks legal and to make gopro cameras you know like tactic cams and that type of stuff legal on on your bow of course, there was a body of sportsmen that were just absolutely hell-bent against it, and it was going to be the end of all hunting as they know it, and it was the sky was falling, and it, it you know, you name all the arguments from, from Pope and Young ethics to just, it is what it is. And if you listen to the latest podcast with um, that I did on KafaroCast, I think we, maybe, I think we did it on, yeah. Yeah, we did it on part one. We part one we did. To, yes, it was part one. So when I brought up the app, when I made the the elk hunters strategy app on the Google, you know, Google Store, you know, Google Play and uh, Google Store, and then the App Store, and then and then iPhone, the App Store, elk hunters strategy app, people just lost their shit on me. I mean, like I was the devil. I I was the single handedly person or single handedly I was going to be one responsible for the death of all ethical hunting in the west it was ridiculous and so there's people that believe that with lighted knocks um and there's people that are vehemently against uh expandable broadheads and etc etc but the thing that i think is hilarious is the reaction of the state agencies 
and what was stated in some of the questions in the commentary was that, you know, the response from the agency was, well, you know, well, you know, if we, if we, if we make these legal, then, you know, we might have to be forced to, you know, you, you'll have shorter seasons, you'll have to accept a, a shorter hunting season, or, you know, we're, we're going to have to cap the number of tags that are, that are allowed in, in these units, you know, and then, you know, or we're going to have to have limited, limited entry or, or limited draw or these controlled hunts. Cause you know, I mean, the, the, you know, the success rate's going to go up and, and the harvest is going to increase and, and we're just going to have to throttle back, you know, hunters. Cause you know, we, we just can't have, you know, some of the, shut up to you agency people. Stop. Have some intellectual honesty. It, we can have a conversation. I think you could have a conversation. I don't know if the conversation would go anywhere because I think there'd be data on both sides of the issue. We could have a discussion about expandable broadheads. Some people claim that they increase wounding loss. Other people claim that it increases the ability uh, for more trauma sooner, and so it helps recovery faster. I have argued both sides of that equation, and I've, I've got an entire uh, podcast discussing my take on broadheads. I went and I pushed back on Aaron a little bit way back when on the Kafaro cast about his take on broadheads. We ended up being on this, actually, it was my misperception of what he was talking about. We ended up being on the same side of the, of the equation uh, with, with broadheads. But there's a lot of debate that can be had about expandable broadheads, especially if we're talking about hunting out west. Now, if we're talking about deer, we're talking about bear, we're talking about pronghorn, those are all thin-skinned game, and, and expandable broadheads are going to just work just fine. They're going to work as good as as expandable broadheads work. And quite honestly, I've killed several elk with Rage Hypodermic uh, expandables. Um, I know a number of people that have killed a number of elk with expandable broadheads. The only reason why I don't generally lean on expandable broadheads anymore is for a while there, I saw a decrease. Two things happened at the same time. I saw a decrease in the quality control consistency of some of the broadheads that were on the, the expandable broadheads on the market that I liked. And at the same time, Iron Will Outfitters, Iron Will Broadheads, came up with their wide series of broadhead, which at that point, for me, the width, the, the cutting diameter of that iron wheel wide, along with the three-quarter inch bleeder blades on it, the hole that that thing puts through an animal is massive. And it's a fixed blade. It's brutally sharp. It's incredibly tough. And their, guarantee, their, their quality control is incredible. Their, their customer service and warranty is incredible. There was no need for me to go and continue down the road of expandable broadheads. You can listen to Aaron and I on this latest podcast um, on the Kafaro cast talking about sever broadheads if you want. But the bottom line is say what you want about expandable broadheads, but especially if we're talking about thin-skinned animals, deer, bear, pronghorn, there's not going to be a problem in the world. And, and there's, again, I, I've killed numerous elk with a rage hypodermic. I know we would have no problem 
killing a sheep or a goat with an expandable. I don't know if you'd want to go after moose with an expandable, but I'm sure somebody has. Okay. And that's the other thing too, is depending on the, the performance of the, as long as the head opens up, it, it all depends on what your arrow weight is and how much energy your, your system is, your, your bow setup is driving. So we can have a discussion about the, the expandable broadhead, but then quite honestly, we have to have an ex, a discussion about what your, what setup you have that's driving the, that expandable broadhead. Okay. Because if you, it doesn't matter. We could go down a, we could go down a rabbit hole here. We could have a discussion about broadheads and, uh, and whether or not they have increased wounding or increased, you know, success or, or lethality and, and recovery, whatnot. I don't know if we'd get anywhere on that because there's data on both sides. And the point being is if the state agency is looking at this from a standpoint of, well, if you go out with a, an expandable, they don't perform. And so you're going to have increased wounding loss. So you're going to have your legal harvest and your take hunters punching a tag, but they're going to say, oh, well, but there's other hunters out there that, you know, they might wound an elk or two or wound a deer or two, not recover that animal and then continue hunting. So they killed it. They just weren't able to find it. And then they went and killed another one. So we're actually increasing the, the mortality on the landscape, which then changes the actual hunter harvest and the overall herd objectives and, and, and post-season survivability of that herd. I'm going to call bullshit on that because I think you can have just as much wounding loss with fixed blades and people that just don't make good shots. So again, we could have that discussion. We could have that argument. But I, again, I think it would be circular and we'd go nowhere. However, <clears throat> with all that said, there's no argument about lighted knocks. I'm sorry. A lighted knock does nothing, does nothing except help you understand where your arrow actually hit that animal and then help you find that arrow. And then sometimes it actually helps you find your animal. So it will help reduce wounding loss. If you want to make the argument that, that not that, uh, expandable broadheads might increase wounding loss. Well, then expand then then lighted knocks will help reduce wounding loss because you'll help you'll be able to find animals better you'll be able to know where your arrow hits so you know how to track that animal better did you 12 ring it and, and double lung that animal or put it through his heart or did you actually shank that shot and it actually went through the liver in one lung or you shanked it and went through the liver and the guts if you if you see where that arrow actually strikes then you have a better chance of going, oh crap, I need to, you know, I can just walk up and get recover this animal or shit. I better give this animal four hours and let it bed down and then I'll come in later and, and track it. And quite honestly, the arrow goes blowing through the animal. Now the animal takes off. You have the better, better ability to go find that, an, that arrow. So you're not leaving, you know, sharp broadheads laying on the landscape and you're leaving arrows on the landscape. You can find that because what the hell does that fully built arrow cost these days like 50 bucks by the time you have the broad head and the components and the arrow itself and the wrap and the fletchings and the lighted knock and what do you you're chucking 30 to 50 bucks down range every time it'd be nice to be able to go and recover that off the landscape number one number two 
now I get to look at the sign that's on the arrow and I can evaluate what sign is telling me. Is it bubbly pink blood that looks like good double lung head? Or is it bright dark, you know, dark red or bright red blood, no bubbles on it? Or is it watery and little green and maybe some smear of fat and some... What the hell is on that arrow? And can I use that? You can, by the way, use that information that's on the arrow to tell what you did, what where that arrow went through that animal so you can recover it more efficiently and effectively. A lighted knock helps you recover animals. It does not help you take more animals. So anybody's, I'm sorry, I've been a long time uh, proponent of lighted knocks simply because I have personally lost the meat of animals I did not recover that I would have 100% for sure recovered because I had a lighted knock on it. And we can, if someone wants to challenge me on that, I'll show them a picture of my 160 inch whitetail from Kansas a number of years back. And we'll, I'll share them that I'll, I'll share that story again, because I would have been able to see where that buck was laying from the tree stand. I shot him from when he fell. And I would have recovered him that night rather than the next day in 80-degree heat and, and, and lost the, the meat. Um, likewise, elk. There's been times where elk, I you know, I shot, and the way the lighting was and, like, the, the you know, the ambient lighting and the vegetation and the shadows and everything else, I wasn't able to be really pinpoint where my arrow went. And I've got a video on YouTube, and, and for those that are subscribers, you get to see the full, raw, emotionally honest full uh video of high country redemption where i got that six by the one of the six by sixes i killed up in my high country camp i thought i 12 ring him i legitimately thought i 12 ring double lung quartering away shot on this elk and it turned out i hit him a little bit farther back than i thought i went through the liver in one lung and i found that bull 16 hours later but because i didn't have the arrow because i couldn't didn't see I, I had no information to go off of. And so for 16 hours, I was a, an emotional wreck picking apart the stinking landscape. And when I did find him, I had to shoot him again. And had I had that lighted knock, I would have had much better information. And I probably would have handled the initial track job better. And I would have recovered that. I would have been able to put that animal down quicker. And I would have recovered him sooner. But I didn't lose any meat, but the animal sat there and suffered for 16 hours when he didn't need to. I can't tell you the number of people, number of animals that I've had to to follow and, and follow up on in, in Kansas. So no, lighted knocks, absolutely. And this is the thing. No one in these states is mandating that they become a mandatory piece of equipment. It's just allowing them to be used. So you don't have to use them if you don't want to use them. Don't use them if you don't. I don't give a shit. But Anybody that's arguing against lighted knocks because it's going to increase take is is no. I'm sorry. I, I will I will absolutely go toe to toe with you, and I will challenge your level of experience on the landscape, and I'll put it up against mine. Okay. Now I understand that there's those people again that they don't want the 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 migration of technology marching across the landscape, making things. Um, more and more technologically efficient where it again this is where i separate lighted knocks they don't want more technology increasing the ease and well, increasing uh the likelihood of take or aiding in take or aiding in a higher success rate uh that would artificially bump up um you know maybe harvest rate so like for instance many people can get you know, I'll, I'll bet you, I don't know the, the statistics, 
off the top of my head what the survey was in Colorado, but I remember the overwhelming majority of people that wanted to allow lighted knocks and wanted to allow to be able to put a GoPro on your bow or put a Tacticam on your bow opposed allowing the electronic range-finding bow sights. Okay, so there's there's sights, there's there's bow sights that you put on your bow that have a built-in range finder. Okay, okay, that absolutely will help increase help you take that animal because now if all you have, you don't have to have you know you don't have to range something and then pull your bow back. All you need to do is just pull your bow back, click a button, boom, and it just either gives you the range or it automatically puts the dot where the dot needs to be in your pin housing. Okay, that absolutely is going to bump up the efficiency of you killing something and absolutely could bump up the rate of harvest, which then could absolutely translate into more animals in a particular unit being killed, which means harvest objectives are either met or exceeded sooner, which means then the state agency needs to throttle back the level of hunting effort in those units because they don't want to over-harvest the animals. And that's where you end up getting caps. That's where you get limited licenses. That's where you get limited draw units, all the, all the above, okay, or shorter seasons. So any piece of technology that helps, especially when we're talking bow hunting, and it doesn't matter all hunting, but at this point, bow hunting seems to be that world where technology absolutely could be attached to the bow or the arrow that would absolutely increase the the um, efficiency and effectiveness of that hunter to kill more things. So there is a legitimate argument to be made that, okay, we should be very critical. It, it, I'm going to, it, this again, it comes down to, you hear me all the time. It comes down to value sets. All right. Everybody's going to have a different value set. My particular value set, my bias is if for a bow, if a person, a piece of technology, oh man, this is tricky. When it, when it comes down to pieces of equipment that gets pieces of technology that can be put onto the bow itself or the arrow itself that will absolutely directly uh, translate into more animals being harvested, uh, ease, uh, ease of the hunter to kill animals. Yes, I, I think we need to have a hard look at it and we probably ought to have discussions about restrictions on those technologies. If we're talking about bow hunting and we're talking about, you know, of course, we're going to have a train come by me. Anyway, um, it, yeah, he's going to be blowing his whistle. Um, for bow hunting, if we're going to have technology attached to the bow or the arrow that is going to increase the likelihood of kill, then I think we need to talk about restricting some of those and have a, a difficult discussion. If we're going to talk about technologies that are attached to the arrow that is going to allow greater efficiency of finding the animal once it is ethically and, and legally taken, then I'm all for it. Now, people are going to say, well, what about GPS arrows, Row? You know, you, you, we could have a GPS technology that, you know, all they need to do is, you know, get an arrow in them and, and you know, stick them in the guts and, and then just come back and track that arrow later. Okay. That's where I think we would have an argument that, okay, well, that could then be translated into increasing the lethality of a hunter to where now you are less 
it's less likely you will lose. How do I? No, not not lose. In the in the lighted knock scenario, you still have to make a good killing shot if you anticipate recovering the animal. Yes, the lighted knock is going to help you see that animal within a certain range and a certain distance, but you're still going to have to track that animal. Having the lighted knock give you the indication of where you struck the animal is going to help you better understand how to track the animal. If you have a lighted knock and you can find your arrow, you're going to be able to better understand what you did and what, where you hit that animal. Sometimes the way the animal falls, you will be fortunate enough to see the arrow still in the animal and the lighted knock sitting there to where you can find that animal. When we're talking about a GPS type of deal, now we're talking about a situation where you don't have to track the animal. You can just track the piece of equipment. That changes it for me in my value set because now, yes, you could simply gut shoot an animal, go back to camp, come back two days later and simply just track the, the, the arrow. You, there's no need to actually track the animal. With a lighted knock, you still have to track the animal in order to recover that animal. And, that, and, and again, at this point, we're talking about criminals. We're talking about unethical pieces of, you know, you, know, you name what, that just want the antlers. They just want the trophy, okay? They just want the grip and grin. Okay, we're not talking about meat hunters because meat hunters, they could use that technology ethically. The issue comes when people want to argue, well, there's unethical people that would use it unethically. Okay, let's go that route then. If someone wants to use a lighted knock and, and shoot a deer un, or an elk unethically, they're still going to have to track that animal as all of us would have to do, following sign and fo- following the physical evidence of the, of the hit and the animal as the animal leaves that sign on the landscape. A GPS type of, of arrangement removes that engagement of the animal and it turns it into where all it needs is tracking of the piece of equipment. That is where I disagree. And that's where I think we can have an honest, uh, honest debate within the sportsman community. We can, we can easily draw, I think, we, it should be easy to draw the line. You have a survey, take a vote, whatever, draw the line. Okay, lighted knocks, yes or no? GPS trackers and arrows, yes or no? And I, I bet you any money, the overwhelming majority of hunters are going to be like, hell no on GPS type stuff. Yes on the lighted knocks. Okay. So when the, when the agencies are turning around, okay, a lot of agencies, there's, there's people in there that have their own value sets. Okay. And I'm sure a lot of this is restricted or, or resistant to change. They just don't want to change stuff. They don't want to, they don't want to open up. We saw this in Colorado. They don't want to open Pandora's box. They don't want to go down the quote-unquote slippery slope. And so they're just like, nope, we're not going to make any changes. We don't want anything. I think that's intellectually weak. I think that is uh, immature. And I think it, it, it's just it's sad that if that's how the agency personnel, um, if, if, that's the, if that is the limit of their intellectual engagement and their cerebral performance on the landscape, that they just can't entertain these things because it's just too overwhelming for them, I think they need to go find another job. 
I think you should have you should have the intellectual honesty to be able to have an honest conversation and say, okay, can we sit down and have a conversation about this and actually do something of substance and meaning? And so when the state again, Colorado did the exact same thing. Oh, oh we're 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 going to have to shorten seasons again because the argument was, is this going to increase harvest? Okay, well, let's just talk about lighted knocks. Well, it doesn't matter even even the broadheads, but just lighted knocks. It's going to increase harvest. No, I don't think so. I think it's going to. If anything, it's going to decrease wounding loss because if if this if they're going to make the argument that especially broadheads are going to you know that there, there's wounding loss on the landscape, even regardless with, with broadheads, you're you know already that there's a certain amount of wounding loss on the landscape. The reason why there's wounding loss in many cases is because a hunter was not able to find that animal, but they wanted to. And they searched for days and they day, you know, days and days and days and days and days and they couldn't find it, couldn't find it, couldn't find it. And so later on, they went back out and then they shot a different animal. Well, guess what? If they went, so they already killed two animals. There's still two animals dead on the landscape. But if the lighted knock had been able to help them find the first one, there would only be one dead animal on the landscape. So again, this is where I go back to, if you want to bitch and complain about a lighted knock, you can't tell me you're going to shorten your season because I think lighted knock would help eliminate some of the harvest on the landscape same thing with caps tags or limited you're gonna to have to throttle back again a lighted knock does not help increase the take of animals it helps you find the animals that you killed so if you're going to go into a commission meeting if you're going to go into talk to your agency folks or legislators or wherever this thing you know is being hashed out right now what I saw in Colorado was a bunch of dumbass sportsmen also get involved. There was a lot of good. Don't don't get me wrong. There was a lot of great organizations and there were a lot of great testimony and et, et cetera. But there was other people that just started getting stupid and, and their emotionalism as well. Don't if how do I want to put this? Because there are going to be agency folks that just engage in pure emotion. Be smart about. I just I would say this. Be smart about how you advocate for your position. You can have, you just can't throw the door open. And, and this goes to the people about, you know, limiting te- technology. Like we were talking about with the light knock versus the GPS. No, we can't just throw the door wide open and say everything goes or slam the door shut. I, I don't, I, I will argue we cannot throw the door open to let everything and anything come and go. However, what they oftentimes will argue, well, we just need to keep the door shut tight. I don't think that's the right answer. I think we can open the door a crack. We can investigate and say, yes, that's a valid piece of equipment or a valid piece of technology that actually can make our hunters more ethical and more uh, and and more responsible in re- in recovering the game that they have put an arrow into. We will we will accept that piece. But we will reject the pieces of equipment that help more hunters just go out there and just waylay more animals. I hope I'm making sense on that. I think I said beat that one probably enough, but <clears throat> man, oh man, it's a, it's, it's a mirror image of what went on in Colorado. Luckily for Colorado, we had good advocacy with our bow hunters association. We had good testimony by, um, some sportsmen, we had some good agency folks that that were willing to listen and, and you know had 
had some common sense and, and emotional and intellectual integrity to sit down and have a meaningful conversation, an honest conversation. And they went ahead and legalized lighted knocks and, and cameras on the bows. They they made it Ill, they they maintained it to be illegal to put a range finding uh, sight on your bow. You still can't put a laser on your bow to where it puts a point. You know you can't cast any sort of beam or any anything onto the target. Okay, those that makes absolute sense. And I, and I think from a bow standpoint, those those are absolutely critical. Um, but there's no reason. There's no reason why you can't crack that door open a little bit and have an intellectual discussion and pick good technology uh, that makes sense on allowing more ethical recovery of animals that have already been hit. Now, when we're talking about muzzleloaders and and rifles, I think the cat's out of the bag. On I, I don't the, no the, the the toothpaste is out of the tube when it comes to rifles. Um, if you if we had wanted to limit that in the past, I think as soon as they came up with ballistic turrets, uh, as soon as they came up with um, well ballistic reticles. I think that should have been outlawed. If it, I'm not saying it should have been. I'm saying if you wanted to limit rifle methodology, you should have shut it down way back then. Now that you have ballistic reticles, <clears throat> now that you have ballistic turrets that you can dial and, and the rifle's shooting out to 1,000 yards, I don't see how you put that toothpaste back in the tube. I, I don't see it. Um, with with muzzleloaders, you can still say, okay, you know, open sights only. But even then, you I mean, hell, some of these muzzleloaders these days with a good high-quality peep sight on them and, and the modern propellants and all that type of stuff, it, it's still, you know, 100, 150, you know, yard gun. Um, Colorado, I know, has done that. They've limited what you can do uh, and, and for a muzzleloader. Uh, and I, and I do think, uh, some of these, you know, the, like for instance, what is the definition of a muzzleloader? Does, does the, does the powder and the projectile have to go in from the muzzle or just the projectile? Because there's now some muzzleloaders, they're claiming to be muzzleloaders to where you can, you can breach load the entire powder charge. All you have to do is you just put the, the bullet in from the muzzle. Well, is that, is that in the spirit of what a muzzleloader is? I would argue no, but that's just my value set. Um, so there are some states that are looking at that saying, no, okay, we, we don't want that to be legal. It needs to be the powder and the, the, the projectile, both you know loaded from the muzzle. Um, but then even then, there's, there's new tech. I mean, there's all sorts of, this is where it, it gets out of, outside of my expertise. I'm not a muzzleloader guy. Again, um, with some of this stuff, I think um, the two the toothpaste is out of the tube, um, and I don't know if you're going to get it back. But if we're talking about you know high tech scopes on something, because I was down in Arizona and somebody came down into camp, and I think they I don't remember. Don't get please don't crucify me on this, but legitimately, I thought they said that this particular muzzleloader was a 600 to 800 yard muzzleloader. Like legitimately all day long, shoot eight hundred yards, no problem. 
Now, obviously, if you got a massive scope on it, ballistic turrets on there that's matched for the, I mean, it, it, it's it's tricked out with the, the UAS greatest G whiz bang, okay? But because of the scope system that's on it and, and the, the the accuracy of the load and, and accuracy powder in the projectile, it, it can, it performs like a, a high-powered rifle. That's, if if the state wants to manage it for a primitive style hunting experience, then I think it is within their purview to say, yeah, we, we need to limit um, some of this technology. But this is where sportsmen, I think it's incumbent upon you to be engaged proactively and have that dialogue early and start fleshing out and having your arguments within the community early uh, so that way, when you do take it, you know, or somebody does take it before the agency, you guys have flushed out a whole bunch of crap before it even needs to hit the floor of the commission, and, and you guys can have a more efficient and beneficial conversation when it finally hits the public arena. I don't know; that's just my opinion. Um, but any the states, when it comes down to light and ox, if the state's going to say, "Oh, we're going to threaten shorter seasons," we're going to threaten you know cap tags. Most of the time, the reason why they're saying that is because they're anticipating that is going to increase harvest my again again my argument is and i think an argument that needs to be made before these commissions and before the agencies this helps reduce wounding loss wounding loss is all from a biologist perspective you have your harvest success and you have your harvest rate but they do put in a fudge factor for wounding loss now with a lighted knock it can help reduce that wounding loss and so for me, I am a firm, again, I'm biased on a lighted knock, but I think the argument needs to be made before these agencies if they're going to say, okay, well, we'll we will allow a lighted knock, but we're going to shorten your season. Hell no, screw you. Or we're allowed lighted knocks, but we're going to make a limited entry. No, because we're actually decreasing the wounding loss on the landscape, which only helps allow more people to actually fill a tag and meet the uh, harvest harvest objective. It's not increasing overall take on the landscape. That's I'll end it there. <clears throat> All right. Okay. Here's another one. Um, this one is more specific to the times that we're dealing with. It, it has to it has to relate to some of what we just talked about with states making changes, um, and especially when we're talking about Colorado. Recently making some uh, units limited draw. Dale Jones pulling weight. Uh, a couple other uh, folks had asked, and, and I, I took, I, I brought you to, I mentioned you two because these are the points that you guys made in there and I'm going to address. Um, here's the concept. Given what's going on, um, with the economy, given what's going on with uh, fuel prices, given the fact that we've got changes in limited draw versus over-the-counter and the number of tags, you know, the number of non-resident licenses, allocations going to go into places, blah, blah, blah. Are people going to be hunting this fall or not? Um, Should a person gamble? on maybe trying to put in for a limited license. Maybe you're putting in for a a five or a six-point unit or something like that, and you're like, well, 
I don't know if I've actually got the numbers and I don't know, you know, I don't know if I've got the preference points. I don't know if I want to hunt this year, blah, blah, blah. But maybe if the fuel prices are stupid, this there, the fuel prices are going to be just stupid all the way through, uh, the end of this year. Inflation is going to go up. Cost of goods and services is already going up through the roof like crazy. I'm so this past week, I went and bought groceries. I've got a little kitchenette here in the hotel room, so I've I've made my own dinner here for about half the time I'm out here. I've met some friends and uh, and met up with some other people um, at restaurants. Just the cost of going out to eat these days. You you have a hamburger and maybe a beer, and it's like twenty six bucks. It's like what the fr- what 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 how what? It's a burger and a beer twenty. It's ridiculous how much things are costing. That's only going to get worse. Interest rates are supposed to start going up. Well, what does that mean? Okay, well your mortgage if you if you don't have it locked in on a fixed mortgage, your your adjustable rate can start going up. And I think the big one that people are going to really have a shock on is your credit card debt. How many of you have significant credit card debt? If you have significant credit card debt and and the interest rates on those credit cards, those things start going up. Your minimum payments each month are going to go up. So when you look at across the scale of, okay, how many people this year are going to have as much expendable income as they used to have in these previous years? How many people are going to have the luxury with work and and the money that's coming in to be able to hunt maybe multiple states or, you know, multiple weeks at a time? Um, Maybe they don't have as much vacation and maybe they just can't take as much time, you know, unpaid vacation to where an argument can be made this year that maybe we're going to have a decrease in the number of hunters that are on the landscape, maybe even especially non-resident hunters. If you go back, and this this is what I want to do a little bit more research on. I remember back in the Obama days when gas was and fuel was up to $4 a gallon, 2008 especially. And then like 2010 through 2012, something like that, gas prices were $4 and, you know, change it, you know, right, right about four bucks a gallon. I know when that happened, there were, I, I remember my, my, uh, personal hunting trips were curtailed, um, just cause the fuel costs, just nothing more than just the fuel costs. So there is an argument to be made that yes, maybe, maybe because of what's going on, we're, we're going to see a little bit of a decrease in overall non-resident, especially non-resident, but maybe even resident as well. I mean, yeah, it doesn't matter. Not the only reason why I bring up non-resident, non-residents are paying more for the license anyway, and non-residents are driving more. So they're, they're pulling their trailers, they're pulling their, you know, their trucks or whatever. So they're spending a lot more on fuel and they're spending a lot more on the tag. Okay. That's, that's the only, so they're spending more money just to come out and do the exact same thing as a resident is going to do. But it doesn't mean that the resident isn't going to be a, a, a affected by these fuel cho- you know, costs and, and just daily living grocery costs, okay? Um, so an argument can be made that, okay, maybe we will have fewer hunters on the landscape this year. So, you know, maybe you have a chance. You know, if you go in and, and maybe some people are not putting in for licenses, excuse me, this, this, this go-around, let's just say for Colorado, and so maybe some of these lower point units will actually, you know, we won't have the point 
increase the point creep that we normally have. And maybe you have a chance at drawing some of these limited licenses and maybe you have a better chance at having a quality hunt uh, in some areas just because we don't have as many hunters on the landscape. I, I it's, a, it's a legitimate uh, thought exercise, okay? However, if you look at what we've come off the backside of these past couple of years with COVID, and how much pent-up energy and, and demand and drive and desire there is for hunters and, and just people to get the freaking hell out of the house anyway. Get the hell away from all the mask stupid bullshit. Get, get, just, just, I want to get out. I want to go do something. I, I just need to get out and, and just engage the landscape again. Because there's a you know, COVID was a, was a paradise for the introverts. It sucked for all of us extroverts, okay? So if you're even mildly extroverted, geez, OP, just give me the freaking hell out of the house and I want to go do something, right? So I say that because when COVID was going on, the number of people that went out in the field to hunt went through the roof. So there was a hell of a lot of people out in the field that wanted to go hunt. I think we actually could make the argument that there's probably that still pent up desire, that pent up frustration. I want to get out and freaking live my life and go actually freaking do something and not be cooped up and hemmed in and restricted and all this other bullshit now granted a lot of the restrictions are coming down but they're not all coming down and we still have two years of pent up just desire to go out and do stuff to where now there is that 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 strong urge to to go and do and again i i go back to what i've been seeing here in colorado uh right here in loveland geez oh pete now, granted, I'm I'm in a I'm in a downtown area where we've got a lot of really cool, really nice restaurants around us, um, but it doesn't matter where the freaking hell you go. I don't care if it's a Tuesday afternoon, a Friday night, Saturday or Sunday. It doesn't matter. Everywhere is freaking packed. Every restaurant is packed. People are going to the movies. People going. I mean, just just people are going out all over the place, and they're paying the twenty seven. Hell, I did. I did. I did. I paid the 26 bucks for a beer and a burger. Okay. So, I mean, the prices at the restaurants are going up. The prices at the pump are going up. The prices at the grocery store are going up. Our, our, our credit card debt and our energy bills, everything is going up. And yet you still have people going, just massive loads of people going out to eat, packing the restaurants and just living life. So it's now, honestly, at some point that's going to come up and bite us all in the ass. I mean, if you're living on credit card debt, that's going to, that's just going to bite you in the ass later on. But if you have some disposable income now and you have, you, you don't mind spending it, the desire for people to go out and go do something, spend their money for quality experiences, especially after these past two years of getting hemmed in is exceptionally high couple that with we know that <clears throat> excuse me i'm starting to lose my voice which is strange i haven't well makes sense i haven't been talking all week i, I did that gangbuster blitz last week with aaron and then i really didn't talk much all this past week um <clears throat> guess i need to start singing in the truck more keep my my lovely vocal cords in tune anyway like we talked about with hunting and and other podcasts and and here as well is the demand for high quality hunt experience is growing maybe even exponentially the number of people that want a high quality hunt experience or just or or 
let, let me rephrase that. The number of people that are willing to put their money towards experiences that they find value in is growing to where the flip side argument, I think, could be made that maybe this year, coming off of COVID restrictions, coming off of we these past couple of years, we had disposable income. The federal government was giving free money out everywhere. There's people that still have a bunch of money from their PPP loans and, and all sorts of these other stimulus packs. So they've got money now. Maybe if they're not the type of person that says, okay, we're going to use that money to pay down debt or we're going to use that money to pay off credit cards. Instead, if, if their value set is, screw it, I've got this expendable, I've got this money now, I'm going to spend it this year before the shit hits the fan, okay? Before everything goes bad, before we start, can't, you know, we have to buckle down and tighten our belts. Well, I'm just going to have one more play. I'm just at least going to go out and have one more play time before it really gets bad. We may actually see an increase in hunters hitting the landscape this fall. Basically, just get out there now before it really gets bad and, and you know, I don't, I don't know to, to your answer, you know, are people going to go hunt this year or are they going to stay home? And is it worth gambling on a a limited entry tag or, or just continue to do what you're doing, man? I, I don't know. And this, and again, this is going to bleed this, this again, I'm going to, I'm going to come back to this. I I don't have any, I I have nothing right now. I'm not sponsored by go hunt. I'm not sponsored by Hunt and Fool. I, I, I'm not sponsored by Eastman's or any. I, I'm not. I, I don't have any affiliation with these guys. Uh, now I am a member of Go Hunt. Um, I do use their product, um, <clears throat> but I think this is where you pick up the phone and you call some of those guys. And you, you I mean, this is this is what they do for a living. Okay, if you want to pick up, the, if you want to know about elk behavior and what elk are doing, vocalizations and behavior, pick up the phone and call me or go to the website. If you want to know what people are doing with tags and tag sales and tag numbers and 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 draw stats and all that type of stuff, pick up the number, pick up the phone and call the guys at at Go Hunt. Pick up the phone, you know, call the guys at, at Hunt and Fool. Talk to them, see what they say, see what they think. They they they've had, they've got the historical data, all right. Um, and then for those people, you know, the the other questions came in is okay. Well, given all of this, is it, you know, should we just should we just hang on to our preference points and hold out for these really uber premium light tags? Or, you know, are there those three, four, five, six point units that are decent to go hunt in? Again, that's that's your value set. It depends on what type of hunt you want. Um, typically, being, typically speaking, when you're in your 10, 15, 20 plus preference point units, you're in units that are a, that are managed for higher bull to cow ratio, which often means that you're going to have a lot diver, a lot more diverse age structure. Now that was a question that came in about how to to how to pick apart and identify age structure. You, know, you can age. There's enough material out in the in the whitetail world now that it it you can learn how to bracket the age class of a whitetail fairly fairly well. Um, as of right now, there really isn't anything like that for elk. And so people were asking me, uh, a couple of you asked me, how do I do that for a bull? Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to tackle that discussion 
in the elk hunting institute the elk module on the row hunting resources website that's going to be a, 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 a video over there um, but generally speaking in these really uber high preference point areas you're going to be you're going to have a very wide uh, diverse uh, age club, age structure in that herd you're going to have a lot more bulls in that area and then you're most likely going to have a lot fewer hunters Okay, and and that's what you're paying for. You're you're paying for an area where you hopefully you don't run into a lot of people. If, if like for instance, Unit One, Colorado, unless they've changed it. Back when I was, it, there was only one other bow hunter, so it was just me and one bow hunter for the bulk of archery. Now during muzzleloader hunters, mu- muzzleloader season, there was four muzzleloader hunters. Well, I hunted the first part of the season. I never I never saw the other guy. I had the entire unit to myself, and there's like thirty some bulls in a batch it was, it was insane it was awesome i burned 12 points on that you know back in the day now it's probably pushing 20 points but you know so if you are down in the in the ballpark if you're in, in the neck of the if you're down in a your preference point area where you have three or four or five preference points to be honest with you if you are holding out for those uber coveted tags Get yourself to five preference points and then just hope to get lucky. Because number one, I don't think you will ever catch up to the public that has more preference points than you. I don't think, unless you started when you were 10 years old, and even then, you know, maybe you'll have enough preference points to draw it when you're 60, okay? Because the preference points just keep bumping up, bumping up, bumping up. Basically, what for those uber high ones, if you have low points now, I think your strategy is just to hold on to them until you get five preference points and then apply um, and hope that you get picked on on the random segment of that draw. If you don't want to just sit there and gamble the rest of your life away, start looking at, now some of the ranching for wildlife, most of the ranching for wildlife, uh, for resident hunters, ranching for wildlife, uh, Ranching for Wildlife is only available to resident hunters in Colorado. Most of those are uber high preference point areas as well. But go ahead and, and look at some of those as well. Um, if you don't care about antlers, that's a good way to, to you know look at cow hunts and, and that type of stuff as well. But if you are a low preference point holder right now and you don't want to just bank on getting lucky and you don't want to wait the rest of your life away, I think you really do owe it to yourself to look at those two, three, four, five preference point, six preference point areas because you could have a high quality hunt there. Now, there's going to be more hunters in those units. There, there, there's going to be more tags. Um, oftentimes, those units still will be managed for a little bit higher bull to cow ratio. Okay. Um, so you still will have some diverse age class. You will have more bulls on the landscape, which oftentimes can sometimes, depending on the unit, depending on the year, all the qualifications, you can have better bugling activity and you might run into more elk, but you know, those units oftentimes can be a little bit better than what you experience on most over the counter hunts. Now, some over the counter areas are just as good as these two, three, four, point units but that's what you've got to really figure out now and you know some of these uber high preference point you know units in the northwest part of the state of colorado or 61 yeah is there a chance of shooting a 400 inch bull absolutely 
um, on these two, three, four, five, six point units. Can you shoot a 400 bull? Uh, maybe, maybe not, but you could definitely still shoot a really nice 300 plus bull, you know, three to 350 bulls in some of the, depending on the unit that you're in. So it's definitely a, an upgrade to what you're going to, you know, possibly experience in a lot of, uh, over the counter, uh, hunts, but it, it just really depends on what your value set is. You know, if it, given the number of people that have max points for elk, when, especially when we're talking about elk, elk like the, for here, any, any of those 20 point units, any, any of the units that are a 10 and above, I don't know if you're going to catch them. Now, if you're sitting at eight or nine preference points at, at that point, it, unless you're getting older and you don't think you're going to have the physical health to do it anymore, hold on to them and just keep going. Because at some point you're, I think you'll be able to catch up and, and at least maybe draw a tag. And at that point, you know, Okay, say you're sitting on 10 points and you're like, geez, oh, Pete, I, I just want to burn this. Okay, well, don't burn it on a two-point unit. Don't burn it on a four-point unit. Look at it you know, seven, six, seven, eight points, something like that. Just take the next step down. Don't just cash them all in on a, on a two-point unit. That's stupid. But for the people that were asking, a couple of you that were asking, you guys are sitting in that three to six-point range. To me, you've got one or two options. You either get to five preference points that allows you to get in that random draw and then you just play every year. You just keep building and you just keep playing and hoping for that random draw that you randomly draw that tag or just go ahead and just keep, just burn them on a a unit that you want to go play in. And then every couple of years, you just put it, you know, go hunt 49, go hunt uh, 48, whatever you want to do, uh, 76, wherever burn it go back to over the counter for a few years go back to a different unit limited entry you know just kind of bounce around every few years on a on a limited draw uh type hunt they they can be they can be good um so yeah um make sure i've got uh yeah all right and then lastly so yeah here we are an hour and a half already um lastly for there's again it's it here we go here we go we're talking about um non-resident hunters and we're talking about hunter crowding and we're talking about you know quality hunts and we're talking about hunt satisfaction and all this type of stuff well i'm still getting people that are like hey i'm i'm headed out i'm i'm gonna do my first hunt i'm I'm gonna do my uh, i want to go on my first elk hunt or i've been i went hunting a couple times with some family and i know i now i want to get serious about it there are still more people out there on the landscape that want to get into elk hunting in the west hell uh uh dan kennedy um for your question about you know basically iceberg iceberg type pointers on elk you know, he moved to Idaho. All right. So there, there's people that are moving west. You've got people, I mean, here, love it, hate it. I don't, at this point, it's, it's neither here nor there. The number of people that are bailing out of California right now, moving to, to Texas, but a lot of, most of them are moving to Texas, but let's just look at the West, Western states. You've got a bunch of people bailing out of California that are going to Arizona, Colorado, Washington, Oregon. Some going to Idaho. You've got a bunch of people moving to these western states. You've got people 
you've got a lot of new people coming in and becoming resident hunters and they're wanting to get into elk hunting. Okay. So you're, we're, we're going to, this isn't this problem of, of hunter crowding and, um, the desire for high quality hunt experiences is not going to go away. So when we're looking at you folks that are new and wanting to get into elk hunting and, and, you know, again, those, that, that 30,000 foot view or the iceberg type pointers on, on hunting elk, what, what, what should we do? Okay. Bottom line, you know, darn well, you've, you're following, obviously you can get on all the YouTube stuff and look and pick apart all that information. You can get on social media and follow all sorts of social media hunters and influencers and, and popular people, blah, 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 and, and glean everything and everything that you can get off of them. Podcasts. There's a lot of people sharing a lot of good in-depth stuff on podcasts for free. Just get out there and just soak up as much information as you can. However, I will say this, and this is going to be me fully being biased, Okay. I still believe that in many cases you get what you pay for when it comes to information, education, and when you want to shorten your learning curve. Gathering a vast array of free information is valuable. But you're still going to have to get out on the landscape and you are going to have to figure out from all of that free information that you get from people in Arizona, from people in Oregon, from people in Idaho, from people in Colorado, you're you're going to take all the information. And in many cases, not all, but in many cases, when you hear people talking on podcasts, when you hear people talking uh, or see videos on YouTube or wherever, sometimes a lot of the context can be lost. And so if you're going to glean information from free resources, you're still going to have to figure out which one, which pieces of information are valid, which one pieces of information are bullshit, which pieces of information are valid but don't work in your area, which pieces of information do work in your area. And then you're going to have to figure out for your area when to put those things on the landscape seasonally. So you can, you can do a lot for free, okay? And, and I encourage you to do so. But again, full disclosure, I'm biased. I have a paid subscription. That's what the Elk Hunting Institute is about, the, the elk module on rowhuntingresources.com. If you want to shorten that growth curve significantly, I think you I think you owe it to yourself to look into whether it's mine, whether it's Elk Collective, Elk 101. Um I know my philosophy is a little bit different than the other two, but you get what you pay for. Um be picky about where you where you where you get your information because sometimes just having information doesn't mean it's good information doesn't mean it's going to help you shorten your learning curve it actually may give you bad habits 
it may actually slow you down in your development in your area because you're just following bad advice and you don't know it's bad advice until you've gone two or three or four years and it's like, man, this isn't working. And then you find something else that does and you're like, geez, I've been spinning my wheels all this time because I was I was following the advice of somebody that hunts a high bull to cow ratio area when I'm not in a high bull to cow ratio area. I was following the advice of somebody that, that hunts in really, really, really thick, nasty cover but I'm not hunting in really thick, nasty cover. I'm hunting more in open habitats. All different areas in the United States, different habitats are all going to play in how the animals engage those habitats, and they're going to be a little different. Elk or elk, as far as their behavior, vocalizations, communication, etc. But how they engage the landscape and how they engage one another because of that landscape is going to be different. Okay. By reaching out to some of the folks that have in-depth educational resources, I think you can greatly shorten your growth curve, okay? Obviously, I would love you to come check out my stuff um, because I because it's ba- – I will say that because, again, I, I always go back to my stuff is grounded in behavioral research, behavioral science, um, behavioral ecology – and I put the elk in front of you. I can flap my gums at you, tell you what I believe, and tell you what I do, and tell you and tell you why. But when I, you go to the website, you can literally watch an elk do it, and then you hear them, you watch them, then we talk about it, and then we'll go to the field, and I'll literally go in the field and say, "Okay, here's an elk. This is the strategy I'm going to use." Here's why I'm going to use this strategy. Let's see if we can call the bull in. And I put it seven steps in front of the camera. Okay. So I want you to see the elk engaging in, 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 uh, engaging in that behavioral ecology, that behavioral communication. Um, so you can see that for yourself. So absolutely check out rowhuntingresources.com, the elk module, the elk hunting institute. But if you want to go to other resources do it you know gather as much information as you can um just be picky about it but the other flip side is we talked about go hunt we talked about um hunting fool again if you're just getting started and you don't know where to go and you don't know what to do that's what these guys do again again i I don't get a dime from them I, i i i there's there's nothing there other than these are services that i know that I have used in the past, I still use Go Hunt. They will greatly help you. Lean on again. You're going to have to pay for it, but a little money spent up front now, buy once, cry once kind of deal. You know, you buy now, you you spend the money now. You can save yourself two, three, four, five years of spinning your wheels on the landscape. How much money are you spending over that time? You're gaining good experience, but how much money are you spending? "Quote unquote wasting," you know, from a, from an efficiency standpoint, how much money you're spending? Do you take some time and you put some money, some of that money up front, to where you shorten your your learning curve? Um, the other one that I would tell you is uh, the Treeline Academy. Um, Mark, <clears throat> excuse me, Mark Livesey, Livesey, Livesey. Um, his Treeline Academy is freaking phenomenal. I, I I told him I I thanked him for doing that because. I don't have to answer as many scouting questions anymore. When people say, how do I find elk? I, I will I will help you 
if you, if you come to me, I, I've talked about before. I, I just got, I just literally did one last night, sat and, and chatted with uh, a subscriber, and, and he, we went through his entire hunt plan for uh, his Colorado hunt this 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 upcoming year, and he's got, he's another one. He's got it. He he's done some really really good work, and I we. I pointed out some areas that I would go and I told him how I would go about things and, and pick some stuff apart. So I still do that. But if you want to learn about e-scouting, if you want to learn about picking stuff apart on Google earth and the, and the maps and stuff, geez, oh Pete right now, right now, the best resource online anywhere is Mark's Treeline Academy. Go look that up. Mark Livesey. Okay, he's his stuff is incredible, man. The, the, just just some of the Google Earth hacks and and layers that he can show you is going to greatly increase your ability to function on the landscape. Okay, so lean on the experts, and if it's a paid resource, I understand you don't always get what you pay for, but most of the t- most of the time on some of these now you're going to get good, good quality information. Okay. And then from there, um, for those of you that, and I'll, and I'll wrap it up with this. Um, for those that are coming that want to elk hunt for the first time, or you're still relatively new to elk hunting, but you've come from maybe a, uh, back East or let's just say a whitetail deer hunting background. You're better off if you start your elk hunting journey thinking about the lessons and the principles that you've learned through spring turkey hunting than you are if you're trying to lean on the lessons and experiences that you've gleaned from whitetail hunting. Um, Elk are behaviorally different than whitetails. How they... How their their uh, sexual selection mate selection strategy is completely different um how they engage the landscape how they use their no well basically i've got a there on the elk hunting institute the elk module there is an entire section on elk behavior how the, wh- what what they do and why they do it how there's a video or a series in there you know hear you for, or excuse me see you first hear you second smell you third which is 180 degrees opposite on how whitetails uh, engage the landscape and communicate, okay? So you need to understand the differences between elk and deer. Elk are more visual. Deer use their nose a lot more. doesn't mean that elk don't, you know, rely on their nose for danger. They do, but they don't use it for communication, uh, and they don't put as much weight on it uh, as uh, and hearing as they do with their visual. Okay. So you, so you have to understand the fundamental differences in behavior between elk and deer elk from a behavior standpoint on the landscape are actually much closer to what turkeys, your spring turkeys are doing. All right. So if you're a, if you're, if you're coming from back East and you are a really good spring turkey hunter, you have actual leg up on, on your elk hunt. Okay. If all you've done is ever just hunted whitetails, you're, you're going to have to retool the way you think about this species because it's, it's, it's different behaviorally. It's different on how they vocalize. Okay. Um, the other one, the doorway principle that I talk about, 
You can be, whether you want to call, whether you want to set up on a tree stand, uh, I mean, you can hunt elk from a tree stand, you can hunt elk from a ground blind, but most of the time people are either spot and stalking or they're calling. Everybody wants to, I love calling. Calling is, is the sexy ooh way to, to hunt elk. Um, it doesn't matter how good of a caller you are if your setup is poor or wholly incorrect, okay? So learning about setups and how to set up um, and and how you're going to go about your hunt. Are you going to be a solo hunter or are you going to go with a group of people? Because that can change on your strategies. Okay. So how elk engage the landscape and move across the landscape is going to be somewhat too extensively different than whitetails. And I will say this as well. There are a lot of people that talk about the ooh flashy, sexy style of hunting. Okay. I am not that guy. Can I do all the, you know, the bugling and and the aggressive strategies and and all that? Yes. If you followed me any length of time, you know, I don't go there first. I am a huge advocate for starting off at the base fundamental core of basic communication, the communication and behavior that elk exhibit year round. That is the bedrock from which all activity on the landscape, whether it's September, whether it's February, whether it's July or December, it doesn't matter. That that bedrock of fundamental behavior and vocalization and communication is what builds up from there to where when you're in September, you can use all of it and then you're allowed to go up from there and get all as, as fancy as you want to get with your bugling and aggressive strategies. I hammer, hammer, hammer. Fundamentals, fundamentals, fundamentals. So many people out there today I see, and and next week I'm going to be down in Denver at the Denver International Sportsman's Expo, the ISC show. I'm going to be speaking there again this year, like I always do. That is going to be the topic of, or that the topic this year is going to be um, basically defeated before you begin. Why are we seeing so many hunters putting so much effort into the preseason work, but then all that effort does not translate into moving the needle when they're actually in the field? What the hell is going on between our preseason efforts and our preseason you know, preparation? And why is that just not seemingly moving the needle on more elk encounters, more elk on the ground for us as a hunter each year, okay? This is going to be part of that topic. There are a lot of people that overlook the importance of the fundamentals. And here, we, in, in a, again, I, I said I was going to wrap this up. Good way to bring it back. You look at some of these UFC fights. You, you go back and you watch some of the best fighters and, and some of the, the most consistent fighters that, that consistently win and have the longest careers. What do you hear that, you know, the Joe Rogans and the, you know, <clears throat> Daniel Cormier's and um, all the commentaries talk, commentators talk about? A lot of these guys and gals have absolutely mastered the fundamentals to where the fundamentals are second nature. The fundamentals don't, they're, it's not even anything that they think about. It's all instinctual. It just flows. It's part of who they are. 
what that does is it allows them to get creative with all the flashy stuff and the really cool stuff when they're engaging in combat in the in the octagon but it all stems from a solid base core knowledge of those fundamentals so many people want to short circuit not short circuit shortcut sorry not short circuit they want a shortcut they're learning and they their experience and they want to jump right to the flashy. They want to jump right to the sexy. They want to jump right to what's ooh-ah popular gee whiz-bang that all the cool kids are doing. And they forget about or completely overlook really learning and understanding the fundamentals. I'm going to advocate if you're just starting out elk hunting, you have time, Okay. Obviously, I want you to be successful the first year you go out and every year after that. But you have time. Start with the base fundamentals. Build up from there. Understand what elk are doing and why. Why are they engaging the landscape the way they are? Why are they engaging one another the way they are? How do how do bulls find cows and how do the cows find the bulls and who's making the decisions on the landscape? What are they saying? to one another when they're communicating why are they saying it what is the expectation out of the vocalizations that they're getting what do those vocalizations actually really are they asking for a response are they asking for an action all of these things are the base fundamentals that just i can't tell you how much they matter because some of the best elk i'm going to take myself off the landscape some of the best elk hunters that i know outfitters, guides that are going and taking multiple, if not dozens of people every year for the past 20 plus years and that are consistently putting elk on the ground. The vast majority of those people themselves do the vast majority of their calling and their hunting strategy based off of core fundamentals not the flashy, all right? So if you're going to choose, again, I know I'm biased, but it's my podcast, so deal with it. If you're going to choose an educational uh, avenue to, to look into, I would humbly ask you to consider going to the Elk Hunting Institute, the, the elk module at rowhuntingresources.com and diving into that. Start. I don't care if you go to the other ones. Do it. But I'm going to tell you, if you start with mine, you will build a better foundation to when you do go to the other platforms, so much more of their stuff is going to make sense to you, number one. And number two, you're always going to have my stuff to fall back on when the shit gets tough. Because that's really when the fundamentals really shine. When conditions are tricky, when conditions are tough, when the elk aren't vocal, when they're not wanting to play, when when you just can't buy an elk on the landscape or you can't seem to get them to engage, it's not the flashy that's oftentimes going to get them to unhook. It's going to be the fundamentals and the patience and the knowledge of how long do I actually work a setup? What do I actually say when I just can't get these things to vocalize at all? Okay. 
and it, and again, I we have not changed. <clears throat> I guess maybe I, I tease this now. Um, because it's, I, I guess it, it's it's I, I will. It's as good as time as any. Um, hold on. Like everything, <clears throat> costs are going up. I hope uh, so because my website is there's right now there's on just the elk portion there's more than 50 hours of video based education um 99% of everything that I do is video based so you can watch it watch it and listen to it there's like more than 50 hours in there now and I I I've I'll bet you I've got at least another 10 to 15 hours that I want to try to upload to it this summer. Because it's so heavy on high definite, you know, 1080p video, 1080 HD video, that takes a lot of bandwidth. And so the, the web hoster that we have has been wanting to bump up our rates. Now I'm hoping that we can maintain I hope they're not going to bump us up this year. I don't know if but they they it they might. If they do <clears throat> we very well may we have not changed our prices on the website in years. We we try to keep it very 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 reasonable. Um we are well below everybody else's uh programs in price point. We may have to bump up our prices this summer. Um, if if that happens, I will obviously let you guys know. But it looks like the <clears throat> it looks like the prices are probably going to end up increasing this summer. Um, it's uh, when I don't know, but it looks like that. I'm just looking ahead, based on communications, what we're looking at, and based on the fact that I want to upload more. That's going to bump us up and what we need to do. And, and so anyway, it's likely that the costs are going to go up later on. So with that being said, if you want to jump in while it's still as cheap as, as it is right now, uh, especially for like you people that just want the, if you, if you want to get locked in the price that we have now, jump on the annual subscription for the, so you get it for the whole year <clears throat> and then, um, it won't affect you later on. If you, if you get the three month one now, good. I mean, it, it's a, it's a go for it. Get the three month one now, dive in, learn everything you can learn. And then if you want to bail and go somewhere else, go for it. But if you want to re-up again later on and, and um, jump into it, you might see a price uh, a jump. And it's not going to be it's not going to be massive. It's not going to be like earth shattering, but it's still going to bump up. So, all right, it's late. It's about right at two hours. I think we can kill it now. But there was a just a uh, just a ton of really good. Uh, questions that came in I tackled these because these were a lot of the general theme like I said I've got the other ones still in the kitty and the just basically cached and and listed out I'm going to start tackling some of those other ones um, in other podcasts I will tackle some of them in the elk module um, so that way it'll be a a, and some of them actually there's one or there's a couple of them probably be uh, subscriber podcast. So that's the other thing too. There, for those that are new listening to this, um, a lot of these are going to be just open for everybody. But again, you guys, the subscribers, the Row Hunting Resources subscribers, if you go to rowhuntingresources.com and you subscribe to one of the educational modules or whatever, 
Um, again, elk is the wheelhouse. That's that's where we got the bulk, the vast, vast, vast majority of stuff. And then if you are new to turkey hunting and you want to learn turkey hunting, the turkey module, the whitetail module, I'm building that one. There's a little bit in there for very, very basic, basic, basic beginners. Um, I'm going to revamp some of that stuff with some habitat stuff later on. But right now it's the elk is the flagship. Turkey is the other one if you're getting started in turkey hunting. But you know, this is paid for and, and everything's made possible by our subscribers and, and a bunch of you have reached out and, and thank you. So thank you for, you know, those of you that, that like the podcast and want to keep it going. And, and so you, you know, a bunch of you resubscribed and man, I cannot, again, this community is awesome. I'm just going to say it won't, I, I'm probably going to keep saying it. It's just the intellectual engagement that this particular, the Row Hunting Resources family has is just freaking encouraging, man. I can't tell you, it's just enjoyable getting the emails. It's enjoyable getting the private messages. Like people asking questions or, or bringing up topics that make me go, well, that's a damn good question. And then like 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 lose myself in thought the rest of the day, you know, looking at just like diving it because it was, a, it, it was an intellectually engaging topic question. What it, You guys are awesome. But it's made possible because of, of the subscribers. So absolutely, please go over, consider subscribing to rowhuntingresources.com, especially the elk now that we're getting into, well, turkeys. Obviously, turkey season's coming up, so I will be doing some turkey stuff. So if you're just getting into turkeys and if you, you're wanting to do your first turkey hunting turkey hunt this year, then yes, go over and get the full access, the full access subscription. So you'll have the turkey one and you'll have the uh, elk one for the full year. Oh, go through the turkey one. There's so much information for if you want to get, if you want to learn how to, again, shorten your, your growth curve on learning how to effectively kill turkeys. Yeah, the turkey module is for you, okay? But the elk one, for those people who are getting ready for your elk hunt this year, there you go. Alrighty, I'm going to kill it. Thanks, everybody. Appreciate your time and all the feedback and uh, all the uh, all the shares and, and the new followers. So we're just going to keep this baby rolling. I'm going to get home this week and start working in on uh maybe getting some other guests on uh, yeah we'll, we'll talk some more we'll talk some more uh, hopefully get another guest on here uh later this week and talk about some interesting stuff so all right thanks everybody bye